So thank you for celebrating her and for being here today. Uh, the week after Easter, I hope you had a wonderful celebration. I recognize so many of you from being with us last Sunday. Folks online, if you guys are at home resting, I know Tim is in the beautiful mountains. Hopefully the internet is solid there and they're able to catch the service. He sent me a picture of his view from a deck overlooking Big Bear Lake. It was uh, magnificent. So God bless those moments that we get to have together. We're starting a new series today, uh, kind of with this idea of fresh beginnings in mind. And part of the target audience, we're being really honest and open, is to sort of capture the attention of folks who might be in need of a restarting of their spiritual lives. Recognizing that if you follow Jesus, whether you're at the beginning of that journey or you've been down the road a piece in that relationship, every once in a while you need to sort of, you know, peel away all the layers and get back to the beginning. You with me? We've got to kind of go back to some kind of starting point, some kind of reset in our lives because somehow in every facet of our lives, and our, I think our faith journey is included in this, you know, you're kind of going down the road and then all of a sudden these little things start to sort of grab on and connect themselves and, and you know, like parasitic nematodes, you know, get under the surface of things. And all of a sudden after a while you realize that there's a lot of complexity and maybe confusion that comes with that complexity to your spirituality and to your faith journey. And so sometimes it's nice to sort of shed the layers, almost like spring cleaning, to sort of say, what do I really need? What is at the foundation or at the core of my faith identity? And so that's kind of the spirit behind this brief series that we're calling Rebooting Your Faith. Rebooting Your Faith, right? How do you sometimes have to start the machine again because there's too many programs open, too many windows, too many operations happening at once, and maybe you end up with the blue screen of death if you're old enough to know what that was, right? I had flashbacks from the blue screen of death and the rewriting of countless papers because of that blue screen of death. I was reminded this week, kind of in a funny way, of a movie that came out in 1991. Some of you are going to appreciate this. Billy Crystal was in a movie called City Slickers. Anybody seen this movie, City Slickers? You should rewatch it. I think it holds up. So Billy Crystal and his buddies, uh, you know, are all getting older, and they decide to go on an adventure together to sort of want to feel alive. They were stuck in a rut and kind of living in their urban jungle and feeling like they needed some kind of reset, a reboot, to sort of feel like they could get back to their roots. And so they go off into the wilderness and they go on a cowboy weekend where they get to go live on the frontier. And they come across a guy uh, named Curly Washburn, played by the late, great Jack Palance. And so Jack Palance and Billy Crystal are riding horses on this range, and they're riding along, and, and, and Curly wants to share some life wisdom with him and says, you know, the key to happiness is this. And Billy Crystal looks at him quizzically and says, your finger? 
And he says, no! It's one thing. And Billy Crystal puts his finger up and he goes, huh. And he asks, what's the one thing, Curly? And he says, you've got to figure that out for yourself. Cue the music, right? And they ride along. And so begins this journey of self-discovery, of whittling down what's really important, what's at the core of, of our lives, and what else is just kind of on the periphery, what's just extra, what's just hanging out with no real purpose or no real meaning. And that's kind of what we're talking about in this series. Jesus said something similar to this idea of Curly's one thing, right? In Matthew 6.33, Jesus really famously said, Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, speaking of God, and all these things will be given to you as well. And in a way, Jesus was simplifying uh, the Christian life before they even called it the Christian life. He basically said, hey, you're worried about all the peripheral things. This is how you get all the other stuff to fall in place. This is how you get alignment with all the other concerns that are swirling around in your life. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all the other things will be added to you as well. Everything falls into place if you do the one thing, right? And so for Jesus, the one thing was that. Following God, seeking the kingdom, and his righteousness. Sounds so simple and profound, except extremely difficult, right? We struggle with this on a regular basis because we're human beings. And uh, John Ortberg talks about this struggle in something that he calls multiplicity and duplicity, right? We're not good at, at doing one thing, right? We love to multitask. We love to try to be efficient with our time and do lots of things at the same time. Walk and chew gum, right? <laughs> the enemies of simplicity, Ortberg says, are multiplicity and duplicity. Multiplicity is a life marked by ambivalence, pulled and pushed. This is when we long for something and yet we are not ready to change our lives. Isn't that interesting? The pull and push, right? I think the Apostle Paul talked about this in different ways. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I end up doing. Right? And so I'm stuck in this push and pull. I'm being pushed and pulled toward the things that I don't want to do. And I'm having difficulty moving toward the things that I know are important for me or that I do want to do. And yet there's something inside of me, multiplicity and duplicity, that leaves me in a state of ambivalence. I kind of get stuck. Have you ever felt that way when things become kind of too much? You're struggling between the push and the pull, and you reach the blue screen of death kind of internally, and you're like, there's nothing left to do except turn it off. And so ambivalence can set in. Because I'm not wired to care about so many things all at the same time. I can become mentally, spiritually, emotionally overloaded. And a lot of times the response to that, just for our own self-preservation, 
rather than getting pulled apart in a bunch of different pieces, we shut down and we turn inward. Very natural response to being overwhelmed and overloaded. Right? So what does it mean to live in simplicity, focusing on the one thing? Clifford Williams writes a book in Singleness of Heart. Just another quote here to prime the pump. It says, we possess singleness when we are not pulled in opposite directions and when we act without wanting something further for ourselves. Our inner drives do not conflict. They are aimed in one direction. The motives we appear to have are the ones we really have. Our inner focus is unified and our public posture corresponds with it. We are not, in short, divided. In other words, we are who we say we are. We want what we say we want. We're going to do what we say we're going to do. Everything is kind of in alignment, right? Maybe we're living in a kind of authenticity. That's a great buzzword. This connection and congruence with our external self that we show to everybody else and with our in-world and our inside self. Singleness. It sounds so appealing, so simple when you put it that way. But I think sometimes we have to have a reboot, a restart. And so the question for us today as we start the series is, how do we do that? How do we go back to the beginning? How do we reboot our faith journey? Whether we have been journeying with the Lord for some time or we have... Uh, a rudimentary or basic or beginning kind of faith uh, experience, right? So my favorite place to go back to is Psalm 1. There's a beautiful passage here, six verses long, and it paints this beautiful picture for us as we think about what it means to go back to those basic, basic practices that connect us with God, his kingdom and his righteousness. Psalm 1 says this, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whether he, whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked... They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. At the center of this psalm, there's kind of a lot going on. These beautiful metaphors and images and pictures of contrasting something rooted, something Uh, solid, something permanent versus something temporary, something fragile, right? But right at the center of this, uh, I think rests the key to unlocking the psalm and unlocking how we reboot our faith. And it says it right in verse 2, delighting in the law. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. When I think about 
the Christian journey. I'll just talk to those of you in the room who've been Christian for a while. One of the things that I recognize in myself and in conversation is that we typically know how it is that we are being pushed and pulled in different directions. We typically know what it is that we need to do in order to re-engage our faith and reorient ourselves back to the kingdom, back to Jesus, back to God and his righteousness. And yet, we don't do it. It's like dieting. It's like exercise. It's like laundry, cleaning your room. It's like anything in our lives. We know what we're supposed to do, and yet, for whatever reason, we fail to do it, right? We don't want to go after the one thing the way that we know that we ought to go after the one thing. We have become ambivalent, maybe too comfortable in our own multiplicity and our own duplicity to try to simplify life, or we don't believe that it'll work. We're afraid of going through the vicious cycle of simplicity, which sometimes devolves into complexity, right? And we're used to that vicious cycle, right? But my encouragement to you today is that the basic ways, the old ways, the simple ways are the best ways. And that as we unwind the complexity of life, the anchor that we need is found in those basic, old-school, tried-and-true practices that we need to learn how to deepen and enhance, not do away with or reinvent. So how do we become people who delight in the law, who make God our one thing? I would argue, and this is, this is an ancient practice that I'm really lame at, by the way. So I'm not speaking to you as somebody who's figured this out. I'm speaking to you as a fellow journey person who struggles with this. Because the key is meditation. Meditation is that slow time. It's that quiet space. It's that winding down of the mind so that we can move ourselves into simplicity. And that takes time, friends. And I'll say it takes practice. It takes practice and persistence because I don't think we figure it out right away. I don't think it's something that we can discover quickly. I think it's an acquired skill an acquired taste. Not something that we fall in love with easily. I love how Paul puts this in Ephesians. It's in a completely different context. He's talking about husbands loving their wives in kind of a marriage context, but he uses this phrase that sticks with me as I think about meditation. He says, Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Did you catch it? The washing with water through the word. 
this little phrase that Jesus uses in the context of marriage. He's talking about marriage and then he pivots to Jesus and the church. This weird kind of juxtaposition, this weird comparison. But he talks about that. To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. Meditation, I believe, is this notion or this posture of being washed by the word. You see, when we make a decision to follow Jesus, you know, we don't automatically, you know, in an instant become, you know, great people or even good people. We're the same crappy, broken people that we were right before we gave our lives to Jesus, right? I remember this distinctly as a student. I gave my life to Jesus. I prayed the prayer. I went back to my seat and I said, well, I guess I'm a Christian now, even though I have no idea what that means. And so you begin a journey of trying to figure it out, of learning what that life looks like and what it means. So we come in with our brokenness, and what we need is to be washed by the Word. The Bible is kind of like this beautiful instruction guide, this reference tool that we can use to conform our broken thoughts, our habits, and our attitudes and behaviors and be washed by the Word. A simple example of that is when I was a high schooler and, and became a Christian, I used to swear like a pirate. Right? I mean, this is the 90s. Gangster rap was like right on the thing. I was living in Asia and I was angry. I was an angry Asian guy and, you know, wanted to project this notion of toughness. And so every other word was like a curse word. It wasn't even a word. It was like punctuation. You know what I'm talking about? You're just using the words because you're thinking about the next word that you're going to use and you just throw in the F word or whatever word you're using and I would suddenly start to learn all the Korean slang terms for cursing and if any of you are picking up Korean, you know what I'm talking about because you always learn the curse words first in whatever language you're learning. And so that was kind of how I rolled and I walked right into church. That's how it worked. I got saved on a Saturday. I went to church on Sunday. I rolled on in and I was still the same broken guy cursing and swearing in church. And my wonderful, gentle Christian friends were like, hey, Doug, we don't really talk like that here. What do you mean? Well, let's talk over here. And so begins a journey. Or I had to learn that using those words was actually wrong. That was harmful. And that it was upsetting. And I had to take on a whole new attitude, a whole new set of behaviors. And if you're not conscious of how those behaviors are operative in your life, it's extremely difficult to make those changes. It took years for me to evacuate you know, a whole adolescence of using foul language. It took even longer for me to cultivate a sensitivity to that language where it became upsetting to me when I heard the words. Right? And then you have to rebound from that where now I'm not sensitive to the words. It doesn't upset me if other people use that language. 
but I become aware within myself of the power of words. Are you with me? So there is a long journey of being washed by the word, even in one simple way. So this is not easy stuff for us to lay hold of. Meditation, then, is the process by taking the word of God and allowing it to address us, allowing it to instruct us, allowing it to convict us. And this, by the way, is why it's so important for us to have a faith tradition and a God that can challenge us, that can address things that are sensitive to us. It would be very easy to walk through the Christian life and ignore the parts of the Bible that we don't like. Or to ignore the things that God instructs us with that we don't agree with. It'd be so much easier to sort of construct a faith or construct a practice or construct even a picture of God himself that's in full agreement with the things that we care deeply about and we think are important. But when we allow the word of God to address us in meditation, I think the key is to be open, to approach it with humility. Not that you're not entitled to disagree or to struggle or to wrestle or to rage, but to still come in a sense of humility. Maybe that's why we quit when it gets hard. Because we don't like what it has to say to us. And that's okay, too. That's part of reality. So the encouragement is to get back into that space and to do that work. So I want to offer you this structure. And some of you are going to be familiar with this. So this would be like a refresher, or you can just ignore me and look at your phone. 15-minute... It's very honest, right? That's how it works. 15-minute model for meditation. And it doesn't have to be 15 minutes. It could be 10 minutes. You could make it five if you wanted to, though I think that would be too, that'd be too short. I think you need to give yourself an uncomfortable amount of time to sit and be quiet. When was the last time you sat quietly, not doing anything, not while sleeping, Not while watching TV, not while listening to the radio, not while listening to a podcast, not while blah, 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 blah. The toilet doesn't count. (laughs) Where you sat quietly without external stimulation for 10 minutes. You ever tried that? It's really hard. It's pretty tough, right? As an extrovert, distracted person, I can attest to how difficult that is. But I challenge you and encourage you, spend some time doing this. Here's a little structure to it so that you're not just sitting there wondering what to do with your brain. It's called Lectio Divina. It's an ancient practice. It's been around a long time. I couldn't tell you when it started, but it's pretty old. You pick a short passage to read. Maybe it's Psalm 1. Keep it simple, right? Six verses. You probably memorize it in the time that you're doing this exercise, which also would be a cool thing to do. 
you spend 15 minutes, you start by reading the passage, and you read it slowly. Don't read it like a headline. Don't read it like something to get through. Don't read it like there's going to be a quiz. Just read it slow. Read. Lectio, fancy word, Latin term. Then again, slowly read it a second time. This is where it's going to get annoying. You're like, I just read it. Right? You're going to want to fast forward here. You're going to want to skip. You're going to want to hit that little 10-second fast forward thing on Netflix. Don't do that. Stay right in that moment right, and read it again. Even if you don't like what you see, even if you don't like what it says, you don't like what it brings up in your spirit, just hang out with it. Right? Be curious about those moments. Read it again. And when you read it a second time, I want you to think about what jumps off the page to you if something gets kind of shiny or shimmery or you linger, you find yourself lingering over a phrase or over a word. I just want you to note it. Don't take notes. Don't start asking existential questions. Don't go into that part of your brain. Just hang out in that space and just go, huh, and maybe underline it or mark it or do something. Just make note of it. And then guess what? Read it again. If you made it through the second time, third time, and don't rush. See, now you're like, oh, I've got it memorized. You want to just rush your way through. Don't do it. Read slow. Right? You got 15 minutes. It's going to take a long time. Read slow. The second part is to reflect. Reflect. Go back to the passage. Pay special attention to the part that stood out to you. This is where you get to kind of noodle a little bit. Become curious about why things stand out to you in that moment. Start to question, right? Ask God questions like, how does this connect to my life? What do I need to learn or know or be in light of this? What is it bringing up in me? Is it bringing up a memory? Is it bringing up a thought? Is it bringing up a song? Is it bringing up a poem? Is it bringing up a picture, a person? Whatever it is, I want you to just kind of noodle on that and become curious about what the Word of God might be stirring inside of you in that moment. The third part is to respond. Read the passage again. And pray however you feel led to pray in that moment. Not that you pick out anything really concrete, but just pray out of your heart, out of the stirring of that place. Start a casual conversation with God about it. And that's really all prayer is. A casual conversation with God about what he's doing in your life. Maybe there's confession in that space. Maybe it's like, man, God, I'm so distracted. These last five minutes have been so difficult. Right? And it's okay. I think it's better and healthier to acknowledge those things rather than to ignore them, right? It's that inner congruence with the outer self. Let's just be honest about the things that are annoying. Right? I may not make it to seven minutes, God. Right? So if I bail on you, you know, I'll see you later. And the last part is this. The last part is resting. 
And again, I think we're really lousy at this. I don't know. If you're like me, really lousy at this. Rest. You've read, you've meditated, you've responded, and now it's to rest. Do whatever you feel led to do. You will probably want to go run and do something really productive. Maybe resist that initial temptation. You might choose to rest and relax. Pray a little more. You might decide to write something down, draw a picture, take a note, or just sit and enjoy the blessing of your interaction with God in that moment. But just spend a few moments relaxing and unwinding. I encourage people to get in touch with their bodies in these moments. You carry around a lot of tension, the push and pull, right? We're fighting things all the time, and just learning how to breathe and relax within ourselves becomes really helpful in the act of meditation. Maybe if that's all you accomplish in your 5, 10, or 15 minutes, you will have done yourself a great service in learning how to get back in touch with your body rather than just with the external activities of daily living, right? Maybe you're worried that it's not going to work. You're like, Doug, I heard this before. I heard about it in college. Maybe I heard it back in high school. My dad was a pastor, and I've heard this illustration so many times, and it's just lame. Well, I'll offer you this. You're here, right? Or you're watching online. And God is present, as he always is. And God desperately wants to connect with you. More than anything that he wants to do today, he wants to connect with you. And so if you initiate space to engage in his word, I don't think we can make promises or guarantees in the life of faith, but this is as close as we can get if we persist and persevere in these basic activities, I believe God meets us. If we come with humility and openness and willfulness, that is all God needs to meet you in that place. A modicum of faith, even if it's skeptical, to meet him in that place and to be washed by the word. We don't have to look any further than Jesus himself to embody this reality, to embody this passion for what it means to meditate day and night. I think Jesus was the only person who walked the face of the earth who meditated on the law day and night and was careful to do everything written in the law. And out of the 1,800 verses that Jesus spoke in the New Testament, 180 of them were direct quotes from Scripture. Do you know that? 10% of what Jesus said in the three years that we recorded the things that he would say, the really good stuff, 10% of it was a direct quote from the Old Testament. Isn't that crazy? 10%. Just imagine that for a moment. What if 10% of what you used to say, what you say each day, wasn't a curse word, but rather a quote from Scripture woven into everyday conversation, right? 
Wouldn't that be an incredible game show? That would be amazing for us to live in that kind of rhythm. 10%. He was saturated with it. It oozed out of his pores in every circumstance. And perhaps most especially when things were most difficult, the word of God can address us and wash over us when we are in our most desperate place. Those critical moments. Have you ever had that happen, by the way? It's really powerful. When you are moving through a difficulty or you're with somebody who's moving through difficulty and he reminds you of a passage of scripture that absolutely addresses you in that moment. I don't think there's anything more powerful or convicting uh, that we can experience as Christians on the day-to-day than to have the word of God kind of meet us where we are, right? Listen to what Jesus did. Quote from Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Does that sound familiar? This is what Jesus said from the cross, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? And so we look at this and we go, man, he's quoting scripture from the cross. And if we go back to Psalm 22, I love to do this. When Jesus quotes scripture, we recognize that he's probably thinking of the rest of the passage while he's quoting the one thing that he says. Listen to what the rest of Psalm, or part of Psalm 22 says. Psalm 22 verses 14 and 15 says, I am being poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax and is melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of the earth. Jesus' meditation from the cross. Not only a fulfillment of prophecy, but a real picture into his heart, into his wisdom, into what it can mean to meditate on the word of God in every circumstance. And on the cross, Jesus becomes dust. Jesus becomes like chaff that we read in Psalm 1. And chaff is just the dust that falls off the weeds and the leaves and just gets blown away, right? It's the stuff that we're allergic to that just flies through the air like the finest of pollens. And none of us really live to delight in the uh, the law. Nobody really even wants to anymore. And Jesus reminds us, I died on the cross. I became like chaff. I became like dust so that you can enjoy vitality and life and power so that this can become real for you. He made that way. So as we reflect and live in the afterglow of the resurrected Jesus this week, I just want us to be mindful. You're here. God is here. And he desperately wants to meet with you. That when you're in your homes or you're on the road or taking time just sitting in your car or sitting on a bench and you're listening to the birds, I want you to think about the fact that you're there and that God is there and that he desperately wants to connect with you. 
And if you take a few moments to do this, I believe that you and I can understand what it means to be washed by the word, addressed by the word, and have it poured over us. I sat with a woman this week uh, who unfortunately is, is, is passing away. It was my hospice day on Friday. And I sat with her, and the word in the street was that she didn't want anybody to talk to her. That was her thing. She had kicked three other pa- uh, chaplains out of the room, and the answer was no, no, no. And all she wanted was to rest and to get head massages from her caregiver. And I said, okay, that's cool. Well, Somebody said, Doug, tag, you're it. And I said, all right, I'm going to go. And I made my way in, and one of her best friends was there. And she met me at the door just as she was leaving. And I introduced myself, and she says, oh, well, the patient is Jewish. And we go to such and such synagogue, and the rabbi is on his way, but he's not here yet, so, you know, you're welcome to sit with her. But she's not talking anymore. And she's not responding. I said, okay, let's go see what we see. And I sat down with her and I introduced myself and, you know, in a pretty loud voice, you know, said hi and introduced and did all the things and all the pleasantries. And she didn't acknowledge that I was there. And then as I sat with her a little bit, I said, okay, well, maybe I can read to her. And I just asked her a question. I said, would you like me to can I read the Bible for you? Can I just read a passage of Scripture over you? And I was shocked. But she woke up, she half opened her eyes, and she looked at me and she said, yes. Yes. And I said, okay. And so I read Psalm 91 over her. And as I recited the passage, she just sat back in her bed and closed her eyes and was so peaceful and took her hands and clasped them across her chest like this, almost as if she was praying to receive the word, to be washed by the word in what may be some of her final moments. And then her family arrived, her children her grandchildren, arrived in the room. It was a busy day for her. And I said, can I read you another passage? And she opened her eyes again. And she said, yes. So I read Psalm 103 with her family standing beside me. And I wondered to myself as I left that day, What must it be like to connect yourself to God in such a way that maybe the only thing that you want to have happen in that space when a chaplain that you don't know walks into the room is to have the word of God recited over you. And I wondered to myself, who is this person? What a sacred moment we got to share. And of course, it reinforced what I thought about for today. 
the notion of having the word spoken over us. How powerful, how precious, how life-giving it can be, even in the face of what might be our most difficult moments. So I encourage you again, friends, you are here. God is here. And he desperately wants to speak into your life. He desperately wants to guide you. He desperately wants to answer the lingering questions you have about him, about yourself, and about the life that he has imparted to you with purpose, meaning, and value far beyond what we can even imagine for ourselves or comprehend. And if that's true, friends, this could be the most important 15 minutes you spend all day. So put it on your calendar. Make it a practice this week. I challenge you, and I look forward to hearing the stories of how it goes, even if your story was, that was lousy, Doug. I crashed and burned, but I'm going to try it again. Let's pray together.